0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, president and founder of the Coming Home Network International. This uh, episode of Deep in Scripture is a follow-up, if you will, to the uh, short special that I did for Thanksgiving in which I had uh, a real pleasure, if you will, to reflect on having heard the recording of a sermon that I had given 35 years ago when I was a newly ord- fairly newly ordained young minister, a Presbyterian pastor, a homily that I gave at a thanks- community ecumenical thanksgiving service. And in that, I focused on Philippians 4. The focus was Philippians 4, chapter uh, verses 4 through 7. Now, over the years when I've done deep in Scripture, sometimes I've done verses I never saw, hard verses, uh, and then memorable verses. And in a sense, for me, this section of Scripture could certainly qualify as one of those memorable verses. In fact, I would strongly encourage you, if you haven't, to consider memorizing at least verses— four through seven, because I think over the 45 years of my adult Christian life, 45 plus years of ministry, as I think about how many times this scripture has come uh, to my attention, whether I'm preaching on it or teaching a Bible study or or even thinking of words to use in counseling to encourage people through difficult times, this section of scripture from paul uh, just jumps up uh, and is something especially during the challenging times we're going through i think is something that we need to to uh, to focus on and the reason i wanted though to do it this week was because of something unexpected that happened in that recording for thanksgiving And if you haven't listened to that, I'd almost encourage you to pause and go back and listen to that. Uh, Not listening to me, but but to think about uh, what that scripture is telling us. That, if you will, verses 4 through 7 emphasize the key importance of being grateful. The key importance of being grateful, thankful. For what God has done in our life. And when we forget that, when we forget how God has worked in our lives, whether we're young or old, when we forget, then the devil can turn our attitudes towards worry, towards doubt, discouragement, especially when everything in front of our eyes or that we're Uh, picking up in our ears from the media is there to make us feel discouragement, lostness. Um, And even when we see problems in the church and we start to doubt what's going on. And, And Paul was telling the Philippians in the midst of all this, be thankful, remember, remember. Remember what God has done in your life. But I mentioned that something unexpected happened in that recording. I So I, my recording was planned to have that little snippet from that homily from 35 years ago. My plan was when I came into the studio to do a little impromptu introduction, listen to the snippet, and then finish with an impromptu conclusion, which is what I did in that. But as I concluded, I continued our reflection in that Philippians passage to go on to talk about verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. I had not anticipated that. But as I looked back after that, it made me think that I wanted to talk just a little more about those passages. They're very important. Of course, being thankful. But these are, especially in these trying times... I believe extremely important for us to do extremely important for us to do and I'm going to admit something that I know any of you who are involved in public ministry recognize I hope you recognize that if you have responded to the call of God to be a witness for Christ whether as a layman or a a deacon, or a priest, or a minister, be a bishop, if you've responded. And to like that passage in, in Isaiah, who will who will go for me? And you say, here, here I am. Send me. If you've done that, then you are inviting the spiritual battle. Just know it's coming. And what I've found, is that you can do all kinds of reflection in, in your mind when you look at scripture or or you read a book and you're planning in your mind what you're going to say. Maybe you put it down. Maybe you make the outline. But as soon as those words leave your mouth, you've just invited the devil and his horde to turn it around at you. If you're talking about being patient and you say it, I can guarantee that you will be encountered with every voice and temptation, to be impatient. If you called someone to be chaste, then you will be tempted to be unchaste. I mean, it's calculated. I can guarantee it. And in many ways, I found that to be true not just last week or so, but 35 years ago. I mean, there I am, a young minister getting up in front of an audience and saying, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the text. I can tell you as soon as those words came out of my mouth and ever since in these last 35 years, I admittedly am certainly far from perfect when it comes to any of those things because there have been so many times over these last 35 years when I haven't rejoiced in the Lord as I should have. When when my life has not been the best witness that it should have been. When I've taken taken it for granted, I forgot the fact that this idea of the early church, that we are to live in the expectation of the imminent coming of Christ, but we've become so lackadaisical that we don't even think about it. We live our lives day by day as if we're going to live forever. Have no anxiety. I wish. I wish I was a, a good model of that for my wife, for my children, for my grandkids, for my co-workers. Uh, being thankful. Uh, sometimes we, when the temptations of the devil and his horde bombard our thinking, With the stuff we see going on in the world, uh, we can get caught up in complaining, pointing out faults, looking for ways to be critical, and complaining about things not going as well in our lives as they ought to, or as we wanted them to. Things just aren't the way we planned it. Instead of being grateful, being thankful. Lord, I, I'm sorry. Prayer, letting a request be made known to God. How faithful are we in prayer? For many of us, how is it that we become more accustomed to the routines of liturgical prayer, like the Liturgy of the Hours, or, or even uh, the Mass, or even devotional Liturgies like the rosary. And those become our soul prayers. And by saying them, following the rubrics, even with great intensity, we assume that that's all that we need to do when it comes to prayer. But when we take the words of Paul and Peter and John and James and Scripture and our Lord Jesus, They're really calling us to open our heart to God, to let it all out, to let him know what we need and the struggles we're going through. Even if it's, Lord, please give me your grace to cut through this this web of anxiety that has caught my life so that I can be thankful as you've called me to be. So that your peace can cut through all of that stuff so that my hearts and our minds can remain in Jesus. Lord, help us. And that's a summary of of those those verses 4 through 7 that I talked about last week. And I guess what I'm saying is, as soon as you say those, as soon as you say them, you're inviting the spiritual battle. So when we invite the spiritual battle by being by desiring to be faithful to Christ. How? How can we do these things? Some of those are emotions, anxiety. Some of those are are willful choices we make to be thankful. How do we do that? And that's where Paul continues in this Passage, And this is what I wanted to focus on just briefly today, because I wanted to focus on why passage, uh, Philippians 4, 8 and 9 are such an encouragement to our work in the Coming Home Network International. Why verses 8 and 9 remind us of the importance of our work why we do it. In other words, why are we dedicated to helping non-Catholic Christians discover the beauty and the importance of the Catholic Church? Why do we believe that non-Catholic Christians who love Jesus Christ, who love the Scriptures, who pray every day, who seek to live out the Scriptures, why do we believe that yet— They still need to consider the Catholic Church. If you're a non-Catholic Christian, you listen to this. I'm not casting judgment on your walk with Christ just because you're not a Catholic. That's not what the Church teaches at all. But I believe these verses point out why it is important that you at least recognize there is something to be considered about the Catholic Church. And let's look at those passages. Because Paul says, after he's given verses 4 through 7, all the good stuff he said in there, the important things. He says, Finally, brethren, and he gives a list, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, let's stop there. Why is that verse in itself a strong encouragement for any Christian in the world, in my view, to consider the Catholic Church? Now, if you will, this kind of leaps over into the other program that I do, and that's uh, Deep in History. And I believe the reason we do Deep in History is to help people recognize that as you look at history, especially as you, as you study the history, history of the Scriptures of our Lord Jesus, passing on the, the apostolic deposit of faith to his apostles— and then calling them to go forth and make disciples of all nations, passing along what he taught them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching all that I've commanded you. It's Matthew uh, chapter 28. We see the history of the passing on of the truth. Our Lord to the apostles, the apostles to their disciples, and then on and on. If you look at 2 Timothy 2 2, you see Paul telling Timothy to do that. Paul saying, What I learned from Jesus, I gave to you, and I want you to choose others to give it to them. And there you have the, the passing on of the faith. And in, in deep in history, Monsignor Steenson and I are studying Irenaeus's great book Against Heresies. And most recently in one of our programs, we, we looked at a chart that describes in an overview of how Irenaeus in the toward the end of the 2nd century, recognized that this truth of God was passed on. It began in the very beginning in creation when God taught the, 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 the foundational precepts of his law, which are, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that was there at the very beginning. Jesus says that very beginning precept is the foundation for all the law and the prophets, everything. And then how it got passed on and, and then forgotten and then reinstituted after Egypt and then put in writing uh, on, on Mount Sinai. And then how because the people were disobedient and had to get added onto, and all the, the stipulations you read about in Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, and then later in Deuteronomy, even more laws, but all all helping the people understand that most basic precept of loving God with everything you got and then showing that in your love towards your neighbor and then after the the pharisees kind of messed with it and added their own stuff to the law adding and subtracting uh, over overshadowing the law coming up trying to come up with their own Means of righteousness, our Lord cuts through that and he then reminds the people of what they had heard. And then he says how he shows how much deeper it is. It isn't just into things you do, it's your desires. And of course, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount where our Lord expands himself on that fundamental precept of the law. And then he passes that on to his apostles and it's passed on into the scriptures and then through sacred tradition on down to us. Now, why did I go through that long rendition of of, uh, the history of Revelation and how you and I today in the 21st century are seeking to live that out because of what Paul says here. Now, think about all the messages you hear on the evening news. Think about all the messages you pick up and social media, on the internet. Think of all the the independent news uh, outlets on, excuse me, on the internet, on cable. The different opinions that are coming in at you. Just had a big election. The different opinions on who, who won. All the different voices. Think about, as you've heard about the increasing number of independent churches in america some major churches that have been around for a long time are dwindling in membership to the point where they wonder if they'll be around in 5 10 15 years even look at the catholic church the the members the vocations the the uh, the dwindling of those who are attending mass during this covid time i was just at a a church, this uh, this last Sunday, where normally when we were traveling, this church would easily have three to five hundred people gathered. On this particular mass, there were maybe a hundred or so. Look, what's when you listen to all this, and then think about this passage. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. How do you know it's true? how do you know what's true is it up to you to determine which of those voices you hear on the different tv or ch- uh, satellite or cable news networks is true i was thinking as i as i was uh, reflecting on this that even in the letter of philippians let me read you a couple of verses just grab a couple chapter 1 Paul says, filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Then later on, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow. Let me grab you another verse. Chapter 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit, and glory in Christ Jesus. And let me jump over to a verse in chapter 4. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I brought up those four verses is that nowhere in those four verses does Paul call Jesus God. In chapter 2 he says, though he was in the form of God. But it, 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 he's hesitant to call Jesus God. Instead, the references in those four verses are two different different persons. There's God, and then there's Christ Jesus. Now, here we are, 18, n- 1,900 years or, and more since Paul wrote this letter, and because of what happened in the, the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea, and then at other councils, and then through the the, the strong defense of the church throughout all these centuries, we are Trinitarians. We recognize that behind what Paul is writing is that there is one God in three persons. One God in three persons God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. But if you took just those scriptures, you might wonder if that is true. And what you find from history is that, sure enough, within a hundred or so years, a couple hundred years after the writing of this, we have the rise of a priest by the name of Arius who began to teach that Jesus was a creation like you or me. He was a man whom God highly exalted, who was a great man, a great teacher, honored by God, and because of his obedience raised everything that Scripture says but that Jesus himself wasn't God. That's what was called Arianism. And by the time of Jerome and and Augustine and others, the battle had raged to a great percentage of the number of bishops in the churches had become Arian. It had so infiltrated. But yet the thread of what was true was preserved in the church. To this day, if you will, Arius was a Scripture alone guy. In other words, he lifted up the uh, some scriptures and lifted up, lifted them up above that tradition which had been passed down from the apostles to his time, and he he put his weight on the scriptures alone, over the tradition. And the point is, it, it causes the faithful to question what is true. How do you know what is true? There, there are churches today that are, are oneness, Pentecostal churches that don't believe in the Trinity. Is the Trinity true? There are Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and others that do not believe in the Trinity. So is the Trinity true? How are you going to know what's true? And my point is that the Scripture alone isn't always uh, capable of ensuring that we end up with what is true. If we question the church as trustworthy, then a whole list of doctrines become questionable We can decide, well, we'll accept these doctrines, maybe let's say the the doctrines that were declared by the 4th century or the 6th century or the 7th century. But what is our authority to therefore decide that we're going to stop after that and then not accept what the church discerns is true in the different battles that the church went through in these intervening centuries? What are whatever is honorable. Now that word in Scripture is what's worthy of respect, what's venerable or holy. It's another word that can be used for holy. Whatever is honorable. Think about all the different ideas that are pervasive in Christianity today. The different kinds of people that are lifted up as Models of leadership, models of Christianity. What is to determine which of those models is indeed the kind of model we are to keep forefront in our mind, which is honorable? He says, finally, brethren, whatever is just, the word here, just, is also the word translated righteous. It's, not, it's more than what's just fair. What truly is just in the decisions we make, in the decisions our courts make, in the laws that are made, or whether a law is just or not, how do you determine that? Is it up to you and me? A little gathering of Christians, well-meaning who take that passage in Matthew 18 that says, "Whenever two or more gather in my name, there am I in the midst of you." Well, that's a good thing, but are, are they sufficient to determine what is true, what is honorable, what is just, What about what is pure? That word "pure," the the, the di- Greek dictionary says it can be uh, what is chaste. Uh, again, what is holy? Look at our culture today. think of the voices. What is pure for our young people? What is a model for purity? in marriage, in relationships? whatever is lovely. Here we deal with beauty. Whatever is to be determined as worthy to be called beautiful. whatever is gracious or excuse me whatever is gracious now this is an interesting greek word here because this is the only time it's used in the entire new testament it can mean auspicious or well sounding praiseworthy attractive appraising great it's scary to think of the men and women that christians emulate and support and promote in our politics, in the world of media? What determines which of these people and what they stand for is gracious? Then he gives two more things in the list. Now, the phrase, if there is any, is a Greek phrase that can mean the exact same as what came before, whatever is. It could it could be translated that, except in this case, it begins with the Greek word for if. And as I interpreted that, it has an interesting implication because the phrase whatever is, in my mind, at least uh, suggests that Paul recognizes that in all the options that are out here, there aren't Things that are true. There are things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, gracious. Whatever is of these qualities, that is what we are to think about. But in these last two, with the word if, it's as if he's saying, he's questioning whether they are there anymore. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Here we are, about 2,000 years after he wrote this, a little less than that. I remember our Lord saying he wondered if he would find faith when he came again. If we look in our world around us, is there anything of excellence? Is there anything worthy of praise? I believe there is. But how do you sift through all the imitations to determine which of those things in our culture indeed are excellent and worthy of praise? Well, Paul in this list says these are the things. If you want to be able to nurture an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude freer of anxiety, an attitude that causes you to rejoice. He is suggesting what you need to do is to sift through what your mind focuses on with all the inputs. And it's harder today than it was in his time, I believe, of course, through the Internet, the media, the... Um, the information explosion. We have so many voices, but somehow sift through all these imitators to focus on that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is just and pure and lovely and gracious, and that which, in of all those imitators, is indeed excellent and worthy of praise. How are you going to know that? And Paul seemed to recognize that those first listeners to his letter might be sitting there wondering, how are we going to know? Even at their time, there were um, imitators, false prophets. So Paul goes on in verse 9 to give an an answer. Because what he says is, what you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, do. Paul. Who's Paul? If you look at the way he's identified himself and the way others have identified him in the beginnings of all of his letters and in the book of Acts, we recognize that Paul is a chosen apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle meaning a person who was sent. The other apostles our Lord chose during his earthly ministry. Paul, our Lord chose after his resurrection and appeared to Paul and chose him and sent him forth. And so Paul is saying that what you have learned from me, what you've received from me, and not just the specific teaching he's saying, but what you've heard and seen in me. In other words, how he's lived his life that is what you are to do that's your model so what is un- what is he saying here he's talking about what has been called throughout the centuries the apostolic succession that's what this is what are what paul learned from jesus he passes it on and that's what we are to do that is what is preserved in the church If you listen again to our Deep in History program, that's what Irenaeus is talking about. With all those Gnostic teachers who have all their different opinions on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and gracious, every different Gnostic teacher had a different opinion on that and the great confusion in the early church. And what did Irenaeus say? Now, Irenaeus learned it from Polycarp, and Polycarp learned it from John, and John learned it from Jesus the apostolic succession, Jesus to John, to Polycarp, to Irenaeus, and then Irenaeus to his readers through his book and its preaching, and then down through the centuries to us. And what you find in the early church is when people would be confused over a doctrine, the most common expression that was used to say whether it was true is does this idea come from the church of an apostle? Can you trace it to a church of an apostle? In other words, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in an apostle, that's what you're to do. And that's the foundation of the Catholic Church in the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council. It says that this church established by Christ, if you will, this, this preservation of the apostolic deposit of faith that our Lord gave to his apostles and they protected and preserved and passed down, that subsists in, continues in, remains in, in its fullness, in the Catholic Church. It does not mean that if you're not a Catholic, you can't find what is true or honorable or just or pure and lovely, gracious, doesn't mean that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of grace through reading Scripture prayerfully that you can't find what is true. But for me, the question is, when it comes down to being ready to meet the Lord, because that's what Paul said in this, because the Lord is at hand, to being certain that what you believe is salvific, how do you know that? And that's why he gave us the church. That's why he promised that the church would be guided by the Holy Spirit to preserve that's what's true. It doesn't mean that everybody in the church will be perfect. That every pope, every bishop, archbishop, cardinal, priest, religious, deacon, layman will live it out fully. No. We're men and women of of sin and we failed, and we're always under attack. Every single person who's been given grace still has the freedom to respond to that grace and the responsibility to respond to that grace because we will stand before God how we've lived our lives and how we've utilized the gift of that grace in our life. So if it comes down to it, I mean, when we go into the confessional and we confess if you remember something we say in Mass, is we we ask forgiveness for what we have done and not done and what we have thought and what we have said. That's what he's talking about here. That what is to be forefront in the core of our thinking are these things. And we see them in the apostles. That's who we are to imitate. And when our apostolic leaders fail. We are to look through their failures to see the core of that apostolic deposit that they are preserving through their commitment to follow Christ. And so we pray for our leaders. Remember I said earlier that as soon as you put something out of your mouth, the devil's going to nail you. Think about a priest, a bishop, an archbishop, a cardinal, a pope. They've stepped forward to be, like Paul, a model of what it means to follow Jesus. And as soon as they did that, they invited the battle. They need our prayers. Paul ends by giving a promise. If you take this whole thing together, if if by grace you're able to rejoice in the Lord, you're able to have no anxiety, be a, a person of thanksgiving so that your prayers and supplications exude from that grateful attitude to God. And if by grace you're able, be, well it says because if you're able to do those things, we, you, you, you get that peace. Even if it's just a seed of peace in the midst of all the other things that fill our lives, we're asking the Lord, plant that seed of peace in there in my heart so that my heart and our minds are in Jesus. And then we, by grace, we ask God to give us the strength to do this, to focus on that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and gracious and excellent and worthy of praise. And if that means turning off the TV, turning off the internet, turning off the video games, putting aside books that take you way off base and focus on those things that help you focus on Christ. And you imitate those models the church has given us. So it isn't just the, the apostles down through the ages, but it's those people that the church calls saints. Those are the models that the church has lifted up. Look at this guy. Look at Ambrose. Look at Augustine or look at Catherine of Siena. Look at Mother Teresa. These are models for us. How did they live this out? What did they focus their minds on? Were they men and women of gratitude? Imitate them. And then finally, that's when Paul says, Therefore, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. There's that intimacy that Christ talked about in John 15, verse 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. He, Paul, Jesus in John 17 prayed for this kind of intimate unity, the kind that he and the Father experienced. He wanted that between Christians and us with him. That's the promise. Do you feel far from God? Do you feel far from God? Well, that old statement of, who moved, in mean, there's that old, that old adage. But if you feel far from God, then you wonder, what can I do tomorrow, tonight? What can I do to start rejuvenating my intimacy with God? I would encourage you to prayerfully study Philippians 4, 4 through 9 and make these the choices these are the things, these the values, these the attitudes that fill your heart and mind. God bless you. Look forward to joining you on the next episode of Deep in Scripture. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.